My faith was, was never discussed or viewed in dogmatic or heroic terms. It was just Catholic social doctrine, dignity, the poor, inclusiveness, you know, reaching out. I mean, it's, you know, it's not that complicated. It's hard, it's not that complicated. Welcome to Church Meets World, a new podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Sebastian Gomes, an executive editor at America. And I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. Now, typically in this podcast, we reimagine the most powerful stories and thought-provoking analysis in print from America Media. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. That's right. On January 20th, 2021, President-elect Joe Biden will make history in several ways. He won over 74 million votes, surpassing any presidential candidate in history. He's the oldest person to win the presidency and only the second Catholic ever. And his running mate, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, is the first woman and first woman of color to hold this office. That's right. But we know that this was a divisive election for many Catholics and their families. Not only do Catholics comprise a significant part of the U.S. electorate, I think it's 25 percent and there's like 51 million eligible voters um, in 2020, um, but they're also very evenly divided um, and they can swing back and forth between parties from election year to election year. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, a majority of Catholic votes went to Donald Trump. But in this election, the tide shifted. Biden was able to flip Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. And really, that's in no small part thanks to Catholic voters. That's right. And uh, Latino voters also showed up big time for Biden, although Donald Trump did fare better than expected in some Latino communities. Um, numbers and polls aside, though, uh, we also saw how questions of religion and faith figured into this presidential race. Many Catholics were really enthusiastic about Donald Trump's appointment of another justice to the Supreme Court, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, and some were critical of Biden's pro-choice position on abortion. Yeah, and yet others have called attention to the fact that, you know, many of Trump's policies, like the family separation policy at the border or, you know, his general mismanagement of COVID-19 or the more systematic deconstruction of federal environmental protections, not to mention the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords, that mm -hmm. all of those things collectively are anything but pro-life. That's right. But uh, beyond the issues, uh, Joe Biden has spoken really openly about his Catholic faith and particularly how it's helped him uh, heal from deep loss, uh, the loss of his son, Beau, and earlier in his life, uh, the loss of his first wife and daughter who were killed in a very tragic car crash. Yeah, we heard that Catholic faith come through in um, his victory speech when he quoted on Eagle's Wings, which is a pretty famous Catholic hymn um, that many of us recognized. Folks, in the last days of the campaign, I began thinking about a hymn that means a lot to me and my family, particularly my deceased son, Bo. It captures the faith that sustains me, and which I believe sustains America. And it goes like this. And he will raise you up on eagle's wings, bear you on the breath of dawn, and make you to sign like the sun, and hold you in the palm of his hand. And now together, 
On eagle's wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do. Yeah, Catholic Twitter really blew up when he when he dropped that line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this brings us to this episode of Church Meets World. Back in 2015, when President-elect Joe Biden was Vice President Joe Biden, our editor-in-chief here at America, Father Matt Malone, did an interview with him. And in this intimate interview, we hear from Joe Biden about his faith, um, about his family, and about how those really tragic life experiences that I mentioned have shaped him personally. Sebastian and I will be back after you listen to the interview to talk about some key takeaways, so stick around for that. But first, here is Father Matt Malone interviewing then-VP, now President-elect Joe Biden from 2015. Mr. Vice President, thank you very much for being with us today. I'm flattered to be invited, Father. Thank you. At least two of your predecessors as Vice President, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, um, it's well known among historians, they were not big fans of the Jesuits. Uh, Now, a mere 50 years ago, we had a a debate in this country about whether a Catholic could actually be elected president, should be elected president. We established diplomatic relations between the U.S. and the Vatican only in the 1980s. And now this Jesuit pope is coming to address a joint session of Congress. What does that say about our country? Look, Father, um, I think it's sort of the history of the journey of this country. Uh, If you think about it, it's always been in the direction of inclusiveness. It's always been in the direction of of, uh, acceptance. It's always been in the the direction of expanding um, rights and uh, recognizing differences. and I think whether it's a civil rights movement, whether it's the attitude toward the Catholic Church, whether it's the attitude toward minorities, it's a, it's a constant progression. I think it was makes what makes America the unique country in the world. It's about policy. It's about, it's about uh, the whole idea of anything's possible. And it's about progression. And I, I know that sounds... Um, Maybe that sounds too uh, nativist that I'm so proud, but it really is who we are. You know, look, in not too distant future, Father, we're going to be a uh, uh, Caucasians of European descent are going to be an absolute minority in the United States of America. And it's a reflection of our, uh, of who we are. And so it's not at all surprising. And that will change the face not only of the country, but of the church in this country. Well, it's, it will change the face of the church. And by the way, uh, you and I both know it's not, I shouldn't be interviewing you, but you know, there are some uh, real uh, um, differences within the church in terms of uh, the uh, tone and direction and, uh, and just how, uh, how far we should reach out. The thing I love about this pope I got to meet him when I went to his, uh, quote, inauguration. I always thought it was an installation, but right. the inauguration. And I had the great pleasure of representing the United States of America. My sister was with me, and I sat in the altar. And afterwards, as you know, Father, you line up an alphabetical order in the basilica, and the Holy Father stands at the foot of the altar, and he greets every head of state or acting, head of, or acting for the head of state. The United States were at the very end, and so I walked up, and there was a wonderful Irish Monsignor who had sat in with me in a long interview that or discussion I had with Pope Benedict just several months earlier. And uh, he turned, he said, oh, Mr. Vice President, he said, he said, you know, uh, Holy Father. And the Pope reached out like this and he grabbed my hand. He said, 
I know, Mr. Vice President, you're always welcome here. That is the message he's sending to the world. That, and that is the tone he's striking everywhere, isn't it? Absolutely. He is, that's why he's the single most popular figure in the world today. And not just in Catholic nations, across the board. And it's because of the, you know, he, he's, he, he's the embodiment of Catholic social doctrine that I was raised with. Right. The idea that everyone's entitled to dignity, that the poor, the poor should be given special preference, that you have an obligation uh, to, uh, to reach out and be inclusive, that, I mean, look, look at the encyclical on, on climate change. It's all about, you know, we have responsibilities. Uh, we have to husband this, this planet. I mean, and I, I'm excited, <laughs> quite frankly, as a practicing Catholic. <laughs> I am really excited by the whole world is getting to see what are the basic essential elements of what constitutes Catholicism. Right. We, we can argue about dogma, we can argue about some of the de fide doctrine that's been declared, but th th this, is, this is below it and above it. This is something much larger. And he's going to address this joint session of Congress, the first time a pope has ever done so. Yeah. Um, it's going to be really interesting to watch. There's <laughs> I'll be sitting right behind him. <laughs> You're going to be sitting right behind him. You and Speaker Boehner, yes. both faithful Catholics, yes. different political perspectives, yes. obviously. Um, have you and Speaker Boehner talked about the optics of this? Like, uh, oh, are you going to stand, not, are you going to sit, are you going to clap? Not, not in terms of the, of the Holy Father. We always joke on, we've now done seven State of the Union addresses, and uh, we joke with one another. And, uh, you know, John will say, don't stand on everything, will you please? And, <laughs> and I say, I got to stand on the parts I had something to do with in terms of writing them. I'm not writing them, you know, arguing for them. But uh, John's a good guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, we'll, we'll both uh, be sitting there with a great deal of pride. Yeah. And he will have something, won't he, in that joint session to say that will challenge and affirm Everyone in that room, won't you? Uh, different well, I, I, you people. know, I think what people confuse, Father, I've read a lot of what you've written. Um, you don't. Um, the idea that um, fundamental religious um, convictions and all the confessional faiths, not just Catholicism, um, are incapable of being separated from politics with a small p, not a capital, not Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, but, and it goes back to, as I said about Catholic social doctrine. I mean, we are, we say everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity. Um, my guess is, I don't know what the Pope will say, to state the obvious, but um, I would be surprised if he didn't enunciate the principles that underline all the major confessional faiths, and particularly ours, um, and, uh, and imply that there is uh, a collective obligation to, to try to uh, give uh, meaning and life to those principles we all say we agree to. And you mentioned the encyclical Laudate Si, yes. uh, which had, a, had an enormous impact. Some folks uh, in, this, in this country, uh, some of the um, candidates for president have said, that the Pope should stay out of politics. He, he should did really stay out of not politics. be really involved but, but in politics. But they're wrong about that. Yeah. He didn't get into politics. He made it clear. It is not the papacy's role to be the scientist-in-chief and or uh, the political arbiter. But what he talked about are basic fundamental assertions. Right. 
Look, the way I read it, and I read it, is it was an invitation, almost a demand, that a dialogue began internationally to deal with what is the single most consequential problem and, and, and issue facing humanity right now. And, uh, and so the fact that he talked about, you know, I mean, even our Department of Defense has written long papers several years ago talking about what a danger to national security failure to deal with this is. Sea levels rise another foot. You've got tens of millions of people being displaced. You think there's a migration problem in Syria. Watch what happens when hundreds of millions of people in the South, South Asia are displaced, trying to find new territory to live. Look what's happened with, uh, with Darfur. Darfur is all about climate change. It's about arable land being evaporating, figuratively and literally, and warring over land. So I, I, I think it's a total misrepresentation of the Pope's encyclical to say it's a political document. It's a human document. And you read this encyclical both as a public servant and as a Catholic. Yes. And um, I wonder, over the course of your public life, how you, how you have navigated those different parts of yourself, the space between them. Well, you know, I, before we sat down, we were talking about a mutual friend, Father O'Donovan, who I have a great admiration for. And he, when he was president of Georgetown, he asked me, my son was a member of the JVC, the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And he asked me to address a retreat at Gadsden Hall, which is a big hall at, at Georgetown. And I said, I'd be happy to. And then he gave me the topic. He said, and like me to talk about how my faith has informed my public policy. And I never had talked about it in those terms before. But I worked really hard on it. And you know what I found out? is sort of a self-examination. Until you used to write speeches, until you actually put the words to paper, it forces you to, to really focus. I was raised, uh, the, the, the great news for me, where I've never had any conflict, is the way I was raised and the social doctrine and religious theology I was taught were totally consistent. And, uh, and it was summed up best as I thought about it, all the things that, that animated my passions, whether it was the civil rights movement or what's going on in Bosnia, what was going on in Bosnia, were all about what my father would say. My father would say, the cardinal, my father wasn't an overly religious man. My mother was very religious. But my father, would say, the cardinal sin of all sins, Joey, is the abuse of power. Whether it's a man raising his hand to a woman, whether it's economic power being invoked and, and uh, asserted over someone else, whether it is the government abusing its power. And, uh, and that's how I look at um, what, what, what this is all about. Why, why my faith is so consistent with the public policy. Look, I, I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic. I, I really do believe that, uh, I believe faith is a gift. It's not something you can, it's, it's, you know, you, you, you can't learn to acquire it. it, it it's a gift. And our church doesn't need not to tell you, Father. It's a, you know, you look at, uh, you know, uh, God in terms of, you know, you know, the first obligation we all have is love your God. 
The second one is uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And then you, the way I kind of always thought about it, the way I was raised is, uh, although I don't talk about Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ was sort of the human embodiment of what God wanted us to do. And everything Jesus did was sort of consistent with what generically we were supposed to do. Treat people with dignity. Mary Magdalene, leper. I mean, everyone's entitled to dignity. Everybody. It doesn't, there's a basic tenet in my household. And, but when you look at it, it gets down to whether the Pope's encyclical or whether it's talking about the poor or whether it's talking about our obligations to others. It's all about fighting this notion of abusing power, no matter what form it is in, including the power of the church or institutions or... And I, I think that's why, <laughs> I mean, I am so excited about this Pope. And it's not that I didn't have great respect and reverence for the last two popes. I got to meet them. I spent, I had four private meetings with, with Pope John Paul. I, I, you know, I, but the thing that I think is so electric about the Holy Father is he's taking it all back to what my dad would say. We have an obligation to fight against the abuse of power. I find that totally, thoroughly consistent <laughs> with everything a Democrat or a Republican. It does, it's not, can try to implement in terms of policy. Now, we'll disagree on a policy basis how best to deal with that abuse, where we think it exists or if it exists, but I don't think there's any, um, any fundamental disagreement that, uh, you know, we hold these truths self-evident, that all men are created equal. You could say it another way. The Pope says it. Every human being is entitled to be treated with dignity. So I, I find it totally consistent. And by the way, it's not just Catholicism. It's almost all confessional faiths have the same basic principles. And yet there have been times in when I'm talking about specific public policies where yes. you've had to take positions that were at odds with the bishops yes. of this country on contentious questions like abortion. Has, has that been hard for you? It has been. It has been hard in one sense because uh, I'm prepared to accept a fide doctrine on a whole range of issues as a Catholic. Um, even though, as you know, uh, Aquinas argued about in Summa Theologic about human life and being, when it occurs, I'm prepared to accept as a matter of faith. My wife and I, my family, the issue of of, of, of abortion. But what I'm not prepared to do is impose a rigid view, precise view, rigid sounds uh, pejorative, a precise view that is born out of my faith on other people who are equally God-fearing, equally as committed to life, equally as committed to uh, the sanctity of life, and uh, I'm prepared to accept that the moment of conception is human life and being. But I'm not, pre I'm not prepared to say that to other God-fearing, non-God-fearing people that have a different view. And even, I don't want to start a theological discussion, I'll get in trouble, it's above my pay grade, although it's my application. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's even been di disagreement in our church. Um, not that abortion is always wrong. But there's been, there, there's, there's debate. And so 
For me, at a point where the church makes a judgment, as we Catholics call the fide doctrine, they said, this is what our doctrine is. All the principles of my faith, I have no, I make no excuse for attempting to live up to. I don't all the time. Um, but I'm not prepared to impose doctrine that I'm prepared to accept on the rest of them. And I actually had that discussion with Pope Benedict. It was a, I had a wonderful meeting with him several months before he stepped down. It was like going back to theology class. Right. And by the way, and, and he wasn't judgmental. It was an open, I, I, I came away enlivened um, from the discussion. Is there a place in the Democratic Party for people who are pro-life? Absolutely, absolutely positively. And that's been my position as long as I've been engaged. Uh, I wonder if um, uh, we could talk for a moment about uh, how y you've had to live a lot of your, your faith in public view. And um, uh, you've spoken about uh, the, the role that, that loss and tragedy played in your life. And I wonder if, if that has been difficult too. I mean, there's a certain um, loneliness in every morning. and. Uh, you talked about how you feel comforted by your faith, by your family, by your friends. But it, it must be a very difficult thing to do that publicly. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword, Father. I, uh, if you forgive me, I, I know you lost a brother. I did. Um, and I know I can't imagine your father having been a first responder, responded in an accident, find out it's his own son. Um, that he's lost. Um, but look, um, I have overwhelming advantages. So many people have gone through what your father went through. So many people have gone through uh, so much more than I have without the, without the, uh, the support structure I have. And ironically, Father, um, the, um, the situation relating to the public side of this is, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of people affirming the inspiration that my son provided is uplifting. And we, we've all decided, Father, that um, uh, we don't want to talk so much anymore about uh, publicly or even privately about the laws. We want to talk about the inspiration. I mean, his brother, Hunter, is uh, dropped everything and is working on taking care of everything from financial arrangements to literally spending inordinate amount. He has three beautiful, I have three beautiful granddaughters, his daughters. But with their overwhelming support, he's, can, he's spending an inordinate amount of time with Bo's two children. My daughter is regularly uh, um, she lives in Philadelphia, but spending inordinate amounts of time. Um, this family, this, uh, you know, Jill, Hunter, Ashley, my children, I mean, we all decided that um, we should focus on the inspiration he provided. Uh, uh, Vicki Kennedy's a good friend. And Vicki wrote me one of the most beautiful, heartfelt, letters when Bo passed away. She knew Bo well. And uh, she enclosed a copy of a letter 
that Ambassador Kennedy, Teddy's dad, had written to a friend, I think the year was 54, 53, 55 in that range, the early to mid 50s. A very good friend of his had lost his son tragically. And Ambassador Kennedy was sending a condolence letter to his very good friend about the loss of his son. And Vicky said when Teddy was down, he used to pull it out of the drawer and read the paragraph that I'm about to describe to you. Ambassador Kennedy said, and I'm making the name of his friend up, John, I know the depth of the loss you are undergoing. I share it. But John, I've decided the only way, and his son Joe, remember, the eldest Kennedy was shot down in World War II and killed. He said, I've decided the way to give life to Joe's life is to work on those things that Joe was dedicated to. And that's the decision we've all made, that regardless of what I do in public or private life, we are not going to walk away from the things that were, that made Bo's life in his mind beyond his family worthwhile. So we've set up a foundation. He, 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 he felt so strongly about the abuse of children and women. We set up a foundation in his name, raising millions of dollars to help children in distress. He cared deeply about the notion that there was a need for the equal application of the law across the board. So no matter what we do, all of us as a family are going to stay engaged and work on those things that, uh, that, that Bo inspired people to care about. And so I, 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 I'm, and doing that in public, quite frankly, is the best way to avoid what we all feel self-conscious about. We feel self-conscious about the focus on us. I don't want anybody feeling sorry for me or the family. Again, so many people have gone through so much more with so much less support. Yet they get up every morning, Father, and you saw it, and put one foot in front of the other, and they move on. My dad used to have an expression. I remember you got knocked down when it was a football field, or you got turned down for the date, or you didn't win the prize, or you, something bad happened to you. He'd say two things. He said, Joey, where's it written that life owes you a living? And the next one was, just get up, pal. Get up. And that's what Bo wants us to do. That's what Bo expects his father to do. So we're just getting up and moving on, and we're going to do good things in his name. That's also a, a gift of our faith as Catholic Christians, too, isn't it? It is. In, in the journey from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, you begin to experience the people that you've lost in your life, not just as an absence, but also as a presence, right? Yeah. No, it, look, um, I've said this before. Uh, my wife, Jill, when she wants to leave a message that she wants to sink in, she literally scotch tapes on my mirror when I'm shaving. And uh, she had a, uh, she taped about, uh, I guess about almost a year ago on my mirror at home. 
a Kierkegaard quote where he said, faith sees best in the dark. That's the gift of faith. That's the gift God gives you, that you're able to see best. Faith works best when you know the least, when you are most frightened, concerned, not sure of where to go. And, uh, and I find it um, extremely um, reassuring. Um, and I hope I'm not sound like I'm proselytizing. I mean, it's just, no, for, for real. I mean, again, every major confessional faith has the same basic tenet about, and, you know, in our church, we, the way I was raised, you think of it in terms of the Holy Ghost, now Holy Spirit now, but we used to say Holy Ghost, that that's, that's the source of the faith. And Christ was about, you know, his dying on the cross was a heroic act, but what it really says, the way my mom would translate it is, is, is that she used to say, bravery resides in every man's heart and some moment it will be called upon. And it was about, can you step up for things that matter a great Can you sacrifice for things that make me mean a great deal to you? I mean, the way I was raised, the way the priest that raised me, the nuns, my mother, my father, it was never in terms of heroic notions. It was just basic principles. Basic principles. You know, it's uh, on the way over, I was telling a story uh, to Mike about my, uh, my dad. And my dad, my dad would not have been viewed as practicing. He did not go to church every Sunday with us, to Mass with us. And, uh, but uh, my dad was uh, retired, went back to work. We were walking down the street in Philadelphia, and a beggar walked by. And I don't know why I said it. And he walked by me, and just being a why, I never did this before. And I said, as a friend of mine would say, I'm working this side of the street. My father didn't have any money. My father stopped, opened up his wallet. He had a total of $40 in his wallet. He takes it out, gives the guy 40 bucks. And he looked to me like, you know, probably with your dad the same way. My dad never raised a hand to me, but when I got that look, I'm disappointed in you. It was like hit me with a baseball bat. And uh, he said, Joey, this was only Joey. And I said, but Daddy, he, he's just going to get it to buy, go buy alcohol or something. He said, Joey, do you think he'd be on the street if he had a choice? What do you think? What do you think? That's, it wasn't about you give to the poor and you, you know, you, 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 know, you uh, sell all your belongings and follow Jesus. It never, it was just practical stuff. Just practical things. Somebody needs help. My entire time that I lived with my parents, we had, with the exception of two years, a relative living full-time with us in a three-bedroom house. That was just, there wasn't any, it wasn't. And by the way, it was wonderful for kids. For the, for the kids, it was wonderful. Well, my parents did it, but, oh. but it was just, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that, that translating my faith in every, was, was never discussed or viewed in dogmatic or heroic terms. It was just, it was just, it was just part, part of the experience. And that's where I go, get back up and where I began, Catholic social doctrine. You, we can put it in, the bishops say it very well in seven or ten points they, they lay out, or I, I forget exactly how many. 
But it just gets down to basic things. Dignity, the poor, inclusiveness, you know, reaching out. I mean, it's, you know, it's not that complicated. It's hard, it's not that complicated. Um, final question. Has anything changed in your thinking since your last public statements about whether you would seek the Democratic nomination? No, Father. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know from experience like you know from your experience and millions of Americans know, it comes or it doesn't. I mean, I've just got to be certain that uh, if I do this, I'm able to look you in the eye and everyone else and say, I'm give it all my passion, all my, all my energy, and I will not be distracted. And secondly, equally as important, the other piece is, uh, is this, is this moment, is this the best thing for the family as a unit? And by the way, you know, I never talked about family before, but everybody's kind of found out about how I are about family. Sure. But you know, every person decides to consider running for president, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter, on both sides of the aisle. Everybody thinks it's all about well, what, what do the numbers say, you know. That, that, that's a calculation of whether you think it's possible. But that's not the, you know, I've known almost every person who's run for president since I've been 29 years old, personally. And um, it all gets down to uh, personal considerations because you don't get to, you have no right to, as an individual to decide to run, your whole family's implicated. Your whole family is, is engaged. And so for us, it's a family decision, and, and I just have to be comfortable that, uh, um, that this, is, this will be good for the family. In the past, all our political efforts have actually strengthened the family. It's been like, the, there was a joke that the, a, a local Delaware magazine called Delaware Today years ago when Bo got elected said, family business. Well, it's sort of been, you know, my wife's, a, my, my, my daughter's a social worker, my wife's a teacher, my son Hunter's a good lawyer, but he also is uh, the chair of the World Food Program USA, he's still engaged in, I mean, it's all been sort of part of our, my sister, my brothers, and uh, we're just not, you know, it's not quite there yet, and it may not get there in time to make it feasible to be able to run and succeed because there are certain windows that will close. But if that's it, that's it. But I, it's not like I can rush it. It's not like it either happens or it doesn't happen. I know that's not satisfying to anybody, <laughs> but people who've been there, I know they understand. Well, Mr. Vice President, thank you. I hope you know that our prayers are with you and your and family. I appreciate and, that very uh, much. Best of luck in welcoming the Holy Father to this country. I'm excited to see him. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Father. That was Father Matt Malone. America's editor-in-chief, interviewing Joe Biden back in 2015. And, you know, Sebastian, this conversation is really framed in a way by the experience of loss. Joe Biden had lost his son, Beau, earlier that year to brain cancer. And Beau was only 46 when he died. Uh, and this interview with Matt was actually the first interview Biden did with a journalist following Beau's death. 
Yeah, and Matt has also known great loss in his family. Um, he lost his brother Joe in a car crash, and the terrible irony was that Matt's father was a firefighter um, who woke up in the middle of the night to an emergency fire alarm and was the first on the scene to discover his own son, Joe, trapped in an overturned vehicle. Yeah, Matt has written about this for America in an article called Father of Mercies, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But as he was preparing for this interview with then-Vice President Joe Biden, Matt knew that he had to ask how he was dealing with the grief, but that he really wanted to do it in a sensitive way. So he sent Joe Biden the article about his own father, just sort of signaling that he knew something about what it means for a father to lose a son. So when Biden brought this story up in the interview and said he knew that Matt and his father had dealt with a similar kind of grief. Matt was extremely moved and he told me, you know, he could have knocked me over with a feather. Hmm. Yeah. And the whole experience of suffering and how it shapes you forever really comes through in the interview, mm-hmm. right? And it provides a, a lens for understanding um, the other things that Biden spoke about. Um, like just the way that he was able to reframe that grief um, yes. in saying that the best way to honor the life of a loved one is to champion the causes that they cared about, right? In other words, to focus less on the loss and more on how Bo's life and character served as a great inspiration for not only his life of faith, uh, but also his political life as well. Yeah. He, he also makes a point of saying that, yes, he is in very real pain, but So many people have gone through similar things with so much less support. And I think that that says something about Biden's character, that he would recognize that. But, you know, also it says something about his political acumen as well. You know, that anyone working for the common good needs to be able to empathize with the struggles of other people or that we should should be able to empathize. So for Biden to recognize that his own grief was actually a connecting point with others who have suffered really terrible tragedies. I mean, that is, that's a powerful witness in the political realm. Absolutely. Um, were you surprised by how well-versed he was in, in Catholic speak? Like <laughs> he seems to be a very reflective yeah. person. Yeah. I kind of think that he regards himself as an armchair theologian. You know, he's, right. he's very comfortable talking openly about his faith. And um, I think anyone who is able to speak that fluently, that openly about it, um, is really authentic. The other thing is Biden says it's impossible to separate faith from politics with a lowercase p. And by that, he means politics not as like this two-party system of Republicans and Democrats, but as government and policy that really supports the common good. So whether we're talking about Christianity or any other confessional faith or even the Constitution itself, there is this shared foundation of human dignity, you know, that we're all Mm -hmm. created equal and that we share that basic foundational human dignity. So if we believe in human dignity, then of course we need to advocate for it in public life. And if human dignity is the cornerstone of Joe Biden's faith, yeah, it's going to impact his public policy. Yeah, very true. Um, But he does draw a line around the issue of abortion, right? Um, He Mm -hmm. had to address it. Matt had to ask him about it. Yeah. Um, You know, Biden, a Catholic, um, he says in this interview, like, I'm prepared to accept church teaching on abortion for me and my family. But what I'm not prepared to do is impose a very precise view born of my faith on other people, some of whom are equally God-fearing and committed to life. Um, And it sounds like what he's trying to argue is that you can still be Catholic while not 
removing the rights of a woman to choose for themselves in this case. Um, mm-hmm. And this is not an uncommon argument, right? Some people, yeah. some people do make the case that the person making the decision uh, has human dignity themselves and has a conscience themselves, and therefore moral decisions should be left to them as individuals. Right. But just to be clear, that's not the Catholic Church's position on the issue. You know, Catholic teaching is that life begins at conception and that therefore abortion is wrong because it is the killing of innocent human life. Yeah. And we tackle this super complex issue of abortion um, in episode eight of the Voting Catholic podcast series, which is another podcast that I host and Maggie, you helped me produce. Mm -hmm. Um, And listeners already heard one episode because we dropped it in this feed. But each episode explores a key voting issue from a Catholic perspective through the lens of real people who are engaged in the issues. So Uh, Just another plug for Voting Catholic. Um, Mm -hmm. If you haven't done so already, you can search Voting Catholic wherever you get podcasts and be sure to subscribe. And, you know, even though the voting booths have closed and the election is over, these issues will be with us for a long time. So Voting Catholic is well worth a listen. Um, But that does it for this episode of Church Meets World. Thank you so much for listening. You can watch Matt's interview with uh, President-elect Biden at youtube.com forward slash America Media. And as always, you can see our complete coverage and analysis of the 2020 election and President-elect Biden at americamagazine.org. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn with Sebastian Gomes, and we'll talk to you next time.